Good morning, Kingdom Vineyard, and a very warm welcome to my study. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person, but I am just going to try and look at the camera as much as I can throughout this talk. Letters in the ancient world were a bit like the way that we've learned to experience sermons in Covid Church. The person isn't there present with you, but as the letter was read, something of the essence of the person came through. I hope that happens today. And for what it's worth, this is my letter to you. When Jeremy introduced this series on uh, 1 Peter, he pointed out three principal themes, all of which find expression in today's passage, which is chapter 3, verses 8 to 18. If you have a Bible to hand, please turn there straight away. And especially if you're listening on the podcast, you're going to need to. While you're doing that, and before Jessica comes to read to us, let me remind you of those three themes by way of context. They were, first, a theology of exile. The Christian sees himself as a foreigner in this world, a citizen of a different kingdom. So we can't expect the cultures we inhabit to work around the way that we want them to. And yet this exile, this dispersion, is a, is a deliberate one on God's part, not accidental. So it's to be seen as a scattering, not a shattering. Second, a theology of identity. This is the other side of the same coin. We are exiles precisely so that we can fulfil our destiny. This is chapter 2, verse 9. As a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. From the start and throughout, Peter insists that we're not only saved from something, we're saved for something. We are, as Jesus put it, a city set on a hill. Our lights are visible for miles away across the darkened plain. We are the very temple of Christ himself, chapter 2, verse 5, the place where the weary pilgrim can find God's welcome, God's forgiveness, God's peace, his joy and love. And third, it's a charge of obedience. Our identity as children of God is sometimes at odds with the cultures we inhabit. Therefore, we have to take care that we act as true representatives of our King, who himself suffered and died at the end of his own earthly exile in order to gain a kingdom of which we're now a part. Our priority is to be like him and to obey him, to act in accordance with our identity in him, not like those around us. With all that in mind, Jessica, would you please read to us now? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord will turn against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason with hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So this passage then speaks to me about family, forgiveness, favour and fear. First family, verse 8. Jesus, who taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer to call his Father their Father, also famously commanded them at the Last Supper, John 13, 35, to love one another as he had loved them. And in words that Peter must have remembered well, he said that this alone would be the sign to the world that we are truly his disciples. And in a way, everything that follows in this passage springs from that one idea. This is the love that drives forgiveness. This is the force behind the holy living that results in God's favour. And it's even the thing that enables freedom from fear. As John 1, 4, 18 puts it, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The aspects of this powerful family love to which Peter calls our attention in this verse begins with unity of mind. This doesn't mean a robotic adherence to a set of beliefs laid down by somebody else. True unity of mind can only be approached through a robust willingness to work out our differences in a loving and respectful way. As the old adage of the church has it, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. But this unity of mind, says Peter, is followed by unity of feeling, which is what sympathy really means. We not only have to work on thinking alike, but also feeling with each other all the joys and sorrows, triumphs and failures that that life brings our way. If we can do that, we've surely built a firm foundation for the brotherly love that comes next. I don't want to try and define brotherly love for you exactly, but I, I know that with my own four brothers, A, humour is paramount. And dare I say that's a currency that's sadly often lacking in church settings. B, we don't always have to say what we're feeling. Just spending time together talking nonsense and enjoying a beer is strangely life-affirming. See, the five of us have very different lives and views, yet we enjoy a bond that easily overcomes all temporary annoyances and even the longest absences. 
And the last two quest qualities that he mentions are a tender heart and a humble mind. It's been well said that the ideal Christian is thick-skinned and soft-hearted, but the average Christian often appears to be the opposite. Just think of somebody who's thin-skinned and hard-hearted and you'll see what an unattractive a combination that can be. So what face do we present to a world that doesn't really understand us exiles? A humble mind is certainly going to help. And with a powerful family background like we have, we don't have any need to get up on our high horse and make our point. In the values of the Kingdom Vineyard, you might have spotted a rather countercultural statement that we'd rather be merciful than right. And all we really mean by that is that we'd always rather win a friend than an argument. In these things, we seek to be like our Heavenly Father. Part two, forgiveness. This is verse nine. Remember once again the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I remember finding it enormously helpful when I suddenly understood about the nature of forgiveness, duh, that when we forgive, it literally means we forgive. We give for someone else. So it's the very opposite of paying them back emotionally. We don't pay them back for the hurt they've done to us. Rather, it's paying for them. It's taking one for the team. As the great Barry Maguire once put it, we are to be shock absorbers so the hurt doesn't bounce off our own hard heart and hurt somebody else. As I pray that line of the Lord's Prayer, I always find myself much more able to forgive others. When I think of how much God has to forgive me, it's really a very good deal. Uh, now, when I was saying this, I, I, I know it's a problem for some people. But I'm, I'm not here simply talking about uh, forgiving as if it were an easy thing. Yeah. Uh, deeply traumatic acts of abuse and stuff like that happened in our, our early life or our past. It often takes prolonged help to heal that kind of wound. And though forgiveness is the ideal ultimate outcome, it's not a simple task to arrive there. What I'm talking about is the fact that most of us know even the things that we rightly call slights, because they are slight, can cut us really deeply if they happen to hit us in a vulnerable spot or a vulnerable time. I'm talking about those things where we say, I don't know why it got to me, but it really did. Then forgiveness becomes a matter of discipline. An action that we repeat again and again every time the hurt re-emerges until it starts to come back less frequently and less powerfully, until eventually it fades away altogether. Once I get to that point, I often find a tiny kernel of truth in the original insult. And that's probably what made it so hard for me to laugh, laugh it off in the first place self-knowledge and a humble mind is a wonderful thing. 
I've got two whole sermons on forgiveness. If yeah, if you like, I can send you the notes. But I think there's one main bullet point that I really want to stress, and it comes in this passage. Forgiveness has nothing to do with remorse. If the person who hurt me is remorseful, he's already paid for the hurt he caused because he feels bad about it. Forgiveness is especially for situations where the other person shows no remorse at all. And as verse 9 suggests, when I can unreservedly bless that person, I know I've forgiven him. Point three, God's favour. This is verses 10 to 12. Verse 12 presents us with what looks on the face of it like a simple choice. We can choose to live under God's protection or not. And if we choose not, we shouldn't be surprised at the consequences. You may remember when Jesus laments for, laments for Jerusalem in, in Luke 13:34, he says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you refused. It is sometimes a simple question of whether we want to live under God's protection or not. If we choose to go our own way, So we guard our tongues from hatred and falsehood. We turn quickly away from evil. We decide to do what's right. And we not only choose peace, we pursue it actively. Sometimes that means going after people when we misunderstood or hurt each other. Peace can quickly slip away from us if we don't pursue it. These ideas are all of a piece with what we've already seen about family and forgiveness in this passage, but I believe they also lead on to dealing properly with the issue that comes next. That is number four, fear, verses 13 to 18. Now it seems to be generally agreed that Peter is writing to churches that are either under persecution or which expect to be under it soon. Looking at the Roman emperors around that time, it's pretty clear that their fears are far from groundless. The question in verse 13 then should be read in the light of last week's passage on submission to earthly authorities. If you seek right rather than seeking your rights, then your conduct alone should be enough not only to absolve you from blame, but to make the observer ask, what makes her such an exemplary person? But Peter's perhaps aware that then as now the cynic or the wiseacre might actually want to answer his rhetorical question. I know if we were doing this live, I could confidently expect a heckle at this point. And thanks to COVID, I'm just going to have to heckle myself. Who's going to harm me if I go all out for what is good? Well, let me see. Maybe Rome? In verse 14, Peter answers this heckle too with disarming frankness. Not for him the petty triumphalism and delusion of some sort of prosperity gospel. Peter had lived around Jesus for long enough to be all too familiar with the garbage, the great unremembered promises of Jesus, particularly John 16, 33. 
which says, in this world, you will have trouble. So Peter simply says, if we do suffer for doing right, we're going to be blessed for it. And at this point, I want to suggest something which I didn't actually find in any commentary, so I could be completely wrong. But to me, it makes a whole lot of sense. As I was reading 1 Peter last week, I just kept on being reminded of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Indeed, one of my commentaries said that 1 Peter was far too like Paul's theology to have ever been written by Peter at all. But a quick check of the supposed dates of the two letters shows that what we now call Romans had arrived in Rome, where Peter was living when he wrote 1 Peter. Indeed, Paul himself may have arrived before 1 Peter was written. This being so, it's quite possible they'd spent time together and had lengthy theological discussions, and it is quite unthinkable that Peter wouldn't have read Romans. He may even have been looking over a copy as he wrote this letter. So we shouldn't be at all surprised to find in verse 14 a distinct echo of Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. It's also reminiscent of Matthew 10, 28. Jesus tells, tells the disciples <clears throat> not to fear people whose power to harm them ends at killing them, rather to fear or live in awe of God, who has the power to destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Time is against me and I'm losing my voice, but I'd just like to draw to your attention a rather quaint idiom of the original Greek in this verse. Have no fear of them, will literally be translated, but fear of them, fear not. That made me smile because I think that, that when we catastrophize and expect the worst to happen, we're often not fearing the thing itself. We're actually fearing the fear of having to fear it, if you see what I mean. Verse 15 is saying, that when we do suffer, we can take, we must take care to do two things. A, keep on honouring Jesus as holy. Breathe. The big truths are still true. Jesus is still the loving Lord. And B, springing from that, be ready to explain your positive attitude in suffering. And I find I can't leave this verse without saying I, I've lost count of the times I've heard this verse wrestled out of its context and used as a spur to evangelism, often omitting the vital final clause about gentleness and respect. The fact is you don't need a master's degree in soteriology or a doctorate in apologetics to obey this instruction. We just need the courage to stammer out, here's because of what Jesus has done in my life. I firmly believe that the only apologetic that's going to cut it in this postmodern world we live in is a life well lived, especially in the face of suffering. We're all called to be witnesses, but not all called to be evangelists. I'm now out of time. But just one word 
on each of the last two verses. Firstly, please don't be puzzled by the reference to God's will in verse 17. He isn't setting out to hurt you. In that sense, it's never God's will that anyone should suffer at all. But in this fallen world Jim was talking about last week, doing God's will will sometimes clash with the kingdoms of this world and result in our suffering. That's just the way the garbage crumbles sometimes. And finally, verse 18. Jesus himself is the perfect example of that very thing. He suffered for doing God's will. And if we're going to be like him, it's likely that we'll have to suffer as well. And then again, his story didn't end in the blood and gore of the cross, but in the glory of his resurrection and ascension. And our passage closes with a reference to yet another bit of Pauline theology, which could have been taken straight from Romans 6, or indeed 8. The death of the flesh, that is, our merely animal desires, and the life of the spirit. But that's another story, which you'll probably come on to next week. Now may we, who follow Jesus, also be made alive in the spirit.